Wake Forest University Department of Counseling Podcast. I'm Dr. Bob Nations, and with me is the co-host, Shannon Warden. Dr. Warden is with us. Shannon? Yeah. Bob, these are fun. I I hear people are listening, so that's pretty humbling (laughs) and encouraging. It is. is. Um, We're certainly having fun doing these podcasts, just, you know, trying to... Um, really, I mean, it's, it's multifold for that matter. It's fun time with our colleagues getting to hear about their research and uh, interests and mm-hmm. uh, just their love for counseling, you know. Yes, yeah. So it's, it's for it's those inspiring. purposes, but it's, it's also a great way to get the word out about our programs. We, you mm-hmm. know, we here in the Department of Counseling at Wake Forest University, we have the clinical mental health counseling and the school counseling programs. Those are both offered via our online program mm-hmm. uh, format yes. and then also our campus or bricks and mortar mm-hmm. program and uh, of course also have a master's in human services mm-hmm. um, which is something we're you know proud of as well so we're, ju- we're trying to um, as uh, in fact we've got him here with us again today this is in this episode we've got Dr. David Johnson we call him Dave yes. and um, <laughs> you know we've got him here and in, uh, in a previous episode we were talking about Dave's research around mindfulness his passion around mindfulness and um you know, so it's fun for us to get to hear these uh, hear these folks that we so respect talk about what they're passionate about, to share this with the listeners. You know, so it's exciting for me and for you. I know it's mm-hmm. the same. Certainly All right. is. Yeah. Well, Dave, thank you for joining us again. Glad to be here. And we, you know, we want to know because we we were we felt we could hear your passion. You know, in, in that uh, first episode on this topic, and you know, uh, we want to know where did that come from. There's some pivotal moment there somewhere. Yeah. Um, I can clearly remember my first thoughts beginning to percolate around this idea about mindfulness and being mindful with with clients. Um, uh, I was in my practicum, uh, was uh, 26, 27, somewhere in there, first or second real live client I was working with mm-hmm. um, and I'd had you know like experience working as you know like direct care staff and things but this was really the first time it's me and a client who's in distress sitting in a room together mm-hmm. um, and you know, I, I had fantastic supervision and a great relationship with my supervisor and one of the things he consistently would tell me was you're saying the right things but you need to get out of your head mm-hmm. Get into your body and get into the room. And at the time, I was very much in my head, and it was like <laughs> part of me was a little snarky in that, like, that doesn't really make any sense, but you're I'm saying here. something about, you know, being more yeah. f- touchy-feely. Okay. And it really didn't th- – I think that's the framework I was trying to understand mm-hmm. what he was saying, and so I would just reflect more feeling. But again, it was just – in my head right. and look back at the tapes and I could see it but I remember it one one specific session with this client and I don't remember um, third or fourth session somewhere in there somewhere towards the beginning um, I did something different and I have a hard time describing what it was but I quit listening to what I was telling myself I need to do and decided I'm just gonna I'm gonna shut up in my own head and just listen mm-hmm. to my client and I did. And a few minutes later, I had this thought pop into my head. It's like, huh, it's kind of like when you're meditating. And that thought floated away. And I think that was the first time I really started mm-hmm. to put together. Well, then after that session, in my next supervision session, I got the feedback from my supervisor who was saying, okay, 
you did it. You got out of your head. What's different? And I thought back and I was like, well, I remember having this little switch and thinking to myself, oh, this is kind of like meditation. And it, mm-hmm. I, I think that idea stuck with me through being in practice and finally into, um, you know, my, my doctoral program and kind of thinking about, you know, and it kind of always had that in my mind about really trying to understand what is it about that therapeutic relationship and how can we use that information to be more practical in training people? Because mm. we don't fully understand it, but we know it's a big piece about helping clients get better. Mm. And so that's where my interest in that came from. And, and I'll admit it wasn't um, novel. Lots of other people have had this idea and have come to this idea about, you know, there's something about being mindful that's very much related to a counselor forming and maintaining strong therapeutic relationships that benefit clients. Um, I, I think for myself, where I've, I've tried to take and look at what other people have done and try to say, okay, how do we really tighten this up that we can get more pragmatic about benefiting and training our students? Mm-hmm. And so that's where I try to look at some things like, well, this difference between you know, dispositional and state-specific. Are you doing this in general? Or are you really mm-hmm. doing this as a client? How do we help you do this as a client? We talked a lot about that last week. Mm-hmm. Um, another piece that I've been really interested in is, you know, if we think about mindfulness in and of itself, it's a way of paying attention. But we have, and sometimes people confuse these two, um, we also have mindfulness practices. And sometimes when people say mindfulness, they may be talking about meditation, they may be talking about this way of paying attention, but I like to think of them as two separate things. There's a, there's a mental capacity to pay attention, and then there's these activities you do that foster that mental capacity. I like to think of the difference between strength, it's some capacity that you have to use your muscles to exert force on something, and lifting weights. We don't confuse those. We don't see somebody lifting weights. I mean, we know that you're lifting weights to improve your strength, but strength is just this capacity that you have that you mm-hmm. could deploy at a specific time or not, but it's a capacity that you have. So we think about those practices, and for me, it's like we need to take it back to understanding not just these mental processes, but also the practices, because the practices is what we can teach our students. Mm-hmm. And so one of the first things I started to look at was some of the the research on, okay, well, this mindfulness is helpful. And if helping students engage in these mindfulness practices improves mindfulness, and we know mindfulness is helpful, forming therapeutic relationships, which we've got some good research to strongly support that idea, and some that even suggest we can measure client benefit over the, uh, you know, outcomes by this. Well, how often? And which practices? there are many different types of mindfulness practices and different types of meditation practices. Um, A lot of the previous research, a lot of it has just kind of looked at asking people, well, you know, do you meditate once a week, yes or no? And that's some really interesting data. And it's kind of been inconsistent findings about whether or not you meditate once a week, if that's related to how empathic you are, to the strength of the therapeutic relationship that you can form, um, client improvement. And I thought back to, well, kind of another part of my life and an interest is I've 
played the guitar since I was nine years old and was very much into music. Um, and something that, you know, you always know if you've done that, if you played sports, if you do anything that has that kind of performance quality to it, it's not always the once a week, but how many times a week and how many days a week are you practicing? You know, with if you're a musician, practicing 30 minutes every day is way better than 10 hours once a day. So we started thinking about, well, maybe that's an issue. Maybe, you know, if, if we're talking about someone meditating once a week, well, that, we're talking about someone who one time per week sits down and meditates for 10 minutes as opposed to someone who maybe does this for 30 minutes seven days a week. And a lot of the literature seems to suggest that if you want to tease apart these dispositional assessments of mindfulness, you really can tease them apart based on number of times per week someone is meditating. So we looked at our data um, from, from the study we talked about last week and we, we asked them how frequently do you meditate? You know, how many times per week? And what we were able to do was break up all the participants and organize them into people who don't meditate at all, people that dabble in it but they don't even do it one time per week, people that meditate one to three times per week, and people that meditate four or more times a week. And you know, mm. one of Somebody asked me one time, it's like, well, how did you pick that? And we said, well, three and four, that, that's halfway. You either, you know, more, yeah. m more days than not, okay. between four and up, and, you know, less that's, than that, one to three. I, I kind of, in my mind, went to uh, Prochaska's uh, model, uh, readiness, uh, stages of readiness, mm -hmm. and I was thinking, does um, getting ready to be mindful count? <laughs> Just, am I pre-contemplative about being pre mindful? I yeah. think it might, and we are ho will hopefully be able to touch on that a yeah. little bit. Maybe the skeptics or the un, you know the folks who are hit or miss. Maybe there's yeah. a you know week here or there where they're really focused with it or not. We, we I do. might yes. fall into that category yeah, occasionally. Right. There's, there's definitely this idea of <laughs> yes. an intention to be mindful. Yeah, fosters the ability to, and I think that plays in. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm telling you this. I'm going to cut you. I'm going to interrupt mm -hmm. you. I'm finding myself being very focused in this interview. I feel like because of the topic, Bob. I know. I, do you feel <laughs> that? I'm like, I really am focused. Yeah. Yes. What, how is this happening? I'm going to have to do a study. How did it happen? Yeah, how are you making it happen? I'm loving it. Because, you know, people are listening and they're thinking, this guy, Dave, Dave Johnson, Dr. David Johnson, has given us some. Like you say, it's not novel, but you're pulling some pieces of information together and trying to use them in a little bit of a, a novel way, it sounds like, really trying to um, equip the student and uh, the practitioner as well, mm -hmm. um, which feels good to me because it's a tangible. I, mm -hmm. I can do this. I can catch myself in a session wondering what, what's happening, and I can focus I can uh, because I do want this relationship, the quality of the relationship that you've been talking about. Yeah. So. So thinking about that tangible piece, mm -hmm. we wanted to be able to answer the question, does how often you engage in these mindfulness practices make a difference in terms of this, the quality of the therapeutic relationship? And so we ran some analyses to compare you know, the strength of the, of the working alliance. Uh, we looked at the goal portion of the alliance, the task portion, and the bond portion. Um, and you know, compare those for people who don't meditate at all, those who do but less than once a week, those who do one to three times a week, and those who meditate four or more times a week. Mm -hmm. What we found was for the goal and task portions of the working alliance, so this is the part of the working alliance that's to what extent do my client and I agree on our goals for counseling, 
and the task portion, to what extent do my client and I agree on what we should be doing in session to achieve those goals? Mm. For both those portions of the Working Alliance, what we found was individuals who meditated less than four times a week, so the one to three group, the less than once a week group, those individuals were no different than the individuals who did mm -hmm. not meditate at all. So there's your quantity quality. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what we did find is for those individuals who meditate four more times a week, we found large increases in the self-reported rating of the Working Alliance for both the goal component and the task component. Mm -hmm. We did not find a difference for the bond component. Um, pretty much across the board, everyone rated that high. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, that in some ways doesn't surprise me given that our sample were a group of practicum and internship students. Mm -hmm. um, it's about 180 of them. And I, I, I think part of it goes back to you know, a lot of practicum and internship. You have these motivated people who, for the most part, are self, it, it's very, it, people who are wanting to help, they're engaged to help, and they probably have some capacity to do it, are self-selecting into a counseling program. So these are people who are empathic to begin with. Mm -hmm. The bond is really about that empathic connection that you form with another. I think the goals and task is a lot more the complex cognitive skills that you develop in the training program that I think are, are some earlier things that some students will struggle with. And I like my client, I value my client, but what do we try to do and how do I communicate in a way that we're on the same page about it? Well, there's probably gonna be more variance in that. Same thing with the tasks. of What are we gonna do in session to achieve those goals? I think you're gonna have more differences in those. Um, so what we do see is the mindfulness piece and the meditation piece made that distinction between who had a stronger goal and task and who didn't. And it was those individuals four more times a week. Now, mm. being a responsible researcher, I will say we did not run a study. This was yeah. self-report data. But I, I think it tells us something important to, to think about and look into. Mm -hmm. How often we do these things matters if we're looking mm -hmm. at specific mm -hmm. outcomes. And that, that shouldn't be surprising for anybody who uh, plays an instrument, plays a sport, um, sings, likes to write, likes to do any kind of project, craft, or undertakes any activity that involves practice. Same thing. You play the way you train. Exactly. Mm -hmm. okay. And so it, it, that shouldn't be too much of a surprise. I think there's probably a lot of clarification around that about, mm -hmm. well, when we really put this to the test with, you know, um, going beyond self-report and we start to do intervention studies, that mm -hmm. will be something to look into. But I think it helps us begin to think about that in terms of our training, that, mm -hmm. you know, there, there may be a big difference between doing this, doing a mindful activity once a week and expecting our students to show progress or benefits from it compared to four more times a week. Um, what, I, what I'm liking about this of many things is that I think potentially it gives students a, a framework through which to think about their work. Cause it's, so it's like you've said in, in our first episode of, of this um, uh, group of episodes package. I don't know what we would call it, Bob. But mm -hmm. anyway, in the first episode with Dave, you know, that it's it's not just the good mindfulness practices that we do, but it's how can we now as people, as students and practitioners, how can we, can, how can we transfer that same um, 
practice of mindfulness into the counseling room. Yes. And I think the structure, the potential structure, the potential language even for students of, um, and I don't know what language y'all are using in your studies, but for me it feels like drift or distraction. I think you used the word distraction. If so if I've got some language that I'm I'm now mm-hmm. not so in my head, as you said, Dave, you know, your mm-hmm. supervisor said, hey, get out of your head. And you're like, what does this mean? Oh, I think I know what it means. And, you know, I think most of us as students pass through that way of feeling unsure of how do I, how do I be present? What does this mean to be present? Um, okay, now, now it's starting to click what that means. But I think what this study, what this information Dave has given us, Bob, is mm-hmm. it potentially gives students and practitioners as well structure, a language. Oh, I'm distracted right now. I need to catch myself. I need to um, practice mindfulness. What did you say? It was maybe even in episode one here that you said, um, whenever I, and what was, it might even have been that story in the early part of this episode, whenever I, it was got out of my head when I stopped thinking about what I was going to say or when I stopped thinking about what I was thinking about, yeah. the thought drifted away. And I was somehow, I guess what you were saying was I was able to focus better. So yeah. it's a structure, it's a language, it's a, it's a mechanism for catching myself in session. And now I know yeah. what to do rather than freezing. Oh, in my anxiety, I don't know what to do. It's, 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 it's seems really aware of your awareness. Yeah. yeah. And there's the meta, right. It's aware the of metacognition you're talking about. Yeah. And if we yeah. think back to anyone who's done just like a, a beginning mindfulness practice of noticing your breath, yeah. mm-hmm. when your mind mm-hmm. wanders, return it. Um, we're, we're talking about taking that skill and trying to apply it to your client. Mm-hmm. And we can broaden that out. We see this within the Buddhist practices that there's ways to expand on this. You know, that's a beginning practice to begin to be able to develop the attention to your client, to yourself and your client, to the relationship between yourself and your client, so that mm-hmm. you can pay attention and pay attention to when you're not paying attention and mm-hmm. re-pay attention to where your attention needs to be. And so for me, I think that's what it was, that idea of I became aware that I wasn't paying attention to my client. Yeah. I was paying attention yeah. to the sort of internal chatter in my mind. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not where I was. I wasn't present. I was in my head. And that's what my supervisor was trying to get across. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a natural thing that happens with our students, too, Absolutely. as they begin. So oh, it's, yeah. it's so oh, yeah. familiar to hear it, with our students. This you know, is a normal part of going through the training to become mm-hmm. a counselor. We all do it. Mm-hmm. I guarantee you. Yes. I still do it now some. Sure. Um, just natural drift, you know, yep. you lose yeah. focus. Absolutely. And, and right. So what did you just say, Bob? Uh, what did you say, Bob? What did you say, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> I'm messing. I'm just messing. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's very practical was what uh-huh. I'm enjoying about mm-hmm. this. And uh-huh. if listeners happen to miss episode one, I'm going to go back there here again and say, you know, Dave asked Bob, he asked you and I, what's a good counselor? And we talked and, and then he said, well, you know, he basically simple, simplified it down to it's somebody that helps people get better. Mm-hmm. And you said, and how do we help you be able to help people get better, essentially? Mm-hmm. And it was to get more focused. To, to, yes. Right, to be able yeah. to engage in the relationship more would require us to be more focused. So if, if listener, if you missed that episode, uh, cycle back and pick that one up uh, because that's uh, where Dave is really laying the foundation for all of this and the impetus for it's like, what are, why are we even bothering with this? Because relationship matters to get the quality of the relationship, you're going to have to be mindful. Absolutely. And um, I was, I know we're we're trucking along here, um, but I I wanted to to offer up a couple additional thoughts. Mm -hmm. Um, 
kind of really in that spirit of trying to make this practical and pragmatic. Um, I know in my work with another piece of understanding the mindfulness practices about you know, how often. Well, we've got a little bit of information to guide us there. Another piece to think about is which practices are beneficial. Mm. Um, you know, right, right before we recorded this podcast, one of these times, mm-hmm. we talked a little bit about, you know, the therapeutic relationship is complex, and parts of it involve these complex cognitive processes like metacognitive awareness and focused attention, but other parts are much more affective-based, and they have this motivational, affective, relational component to it. Um, well, what we see is within different types of mindfulness practices are intended to foster kind of different parts of those. So. You know, that there's you know a focused attention meditation to where it's that idea that I'm focusing my attention on my breath or on the sensation of walking or on a candle flame, and when my mind wanders, I bring it back, mm. and that's my whole goal is to bring it back. We have other practices that the goal is to simply notice what you notice, and don't hold on to any of it. It's a little bit more of an advanced practice. Then you have other practice so. That one, that first one is really gonna help you hone in and focus attention, where the second one is gonna really foster those metacognitive awarenesses of helping you notice when you're not noticing. Mm -hmm. Then you have other practices like loving kindness meditation or metta, sometimes referred to, that are really focused on fostering a sense of compassion for yourself and for other people. That's a whole different idea. That's really about trying to develop the seeds of compassion for others and becoming deliberate and practiced in being able to do that. Mm-hmm. You have other practices like insight dialogue that is, uh, it's, a, it's a mindfulness meditation practice you do with another person. So now we're talking about not even something you're doing by yourself and then figuring out how to take that and move mm-hmm. into the relationship with the client, but actually practicing a mindfulness practice with another person in a relational manner. So some of the things I've wanted to look at are, with my students, I want to be able to help them really identify, okay, you should practice, it looks like. It Mm -hmm. looks like right now, (laughs) probably four more times a week you're going to get better results, but what to practice. Mm -hmm. Um, I know anecdotally when I've taught internships um, and practicum students, I would typically teach a walking meditation, a mindful meditation, and loving kindness. What I always noticed was students who maybe had a history of ADHD or had a history mm. of they were a college athlete or they were, a, um, I had one supervisee who, um, she, she had a BFA, she was um, a dancer, really gravitated towards the walking meditations. And I thought mm. they're really embodied. And mm-hmm. it's gaining towards that, that idea of being embodied where my other supervisees really gained more towards the mindful meditation that was much more sitting, calm, stationary. And so I was kind of able to help them pick what worked for them to get started. Um, some recent data that I've looked at, um, actually looked at this afternoon, pulling some <laughs> preliminary fresh. data fresh. from fresh, a, fresh. from a, um, a study I'm currently running, looking at some mm. of these things. Um, kind of what I'm been able to find is that when we when we look at um, again this is fresh but it seems like individuals who do walking meditation they're more likely to have a higher score or 
on uh, what's called perspective taking. So in the session with the client, the ability to be able to understand things from their point of view. Mm. It's a component of empathy. We'll talk about the cognitive component of empathy. We see individuals who tend to engage in a, that loving kindness medica meditation. Well, we could call it medication <laughs> if we want. That's right. <laughs> yeah, um, are less likely to become um, emotionally overwhelmed by what's going on. Mm -hmm. I think part of that is about you're fostering compassion for yourself and the other person. You're less likely to get overwhelmed. You can maintain that sense of compassion and not become distance because of negative or difficult emotions. We see that the goal component seems to be more associated with. Um, in this data, it's looking like body scans are really helping for that with this group that I have. Mm -hmm. um, and the task component seems to be more associated with the focused intention meditation, that, that paying attention to the breath, um, as well as um, that insight dialogue, practicing being mindful with another person. And then for some reason in the sample, I'm not quite sure what to make of this. Right now in the data I have, that bond, that emotional relationship seems to be stronger for individuals who are doing a walking meditation four or more times a week. Hmm. We'll have to revisit this at some point right. when yeah. I have the full data and have really cleaned it up. But I think what this is telling me is that even with this preliminary data, we do see that some aspects of this therapeutic relationship have differential associations with specific practices. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this mm -hmm. is a small sample at this point, but my goal is to hopefully have some of this to make some kind of recommendations or suggestions for students, for practitioners, about if these are the areas in your relationship you're struggling with, with your mm -hmm. client. Maybe you feel a strong bond, but you're just really not clear on what you should be working on or how to do it. There might be some practices that may help you focus mm -hmm. in session. Or maybe, and we've all had this student before, that they understand the theory cognitively, they get it. The student, like me, it's in their head. Some of these practices may help them get out of their head and foster that emotional, relational component to mm -hmm. some extent. Mm -hmm. So, um, it would even be equipping that supervisor who so wisely said, hey, get out of your head. And now go. becomes this language to the student, which more structure, more understanding yeah. of the application of mindfulness to the actual session level mm -hmm. of counseling. So then even yeah. for the supervisor, some structure and language there. Any supervisee, I think you really need to get out of your head. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Here's some things I think we can oh, try yeah, that yeah, might yeah. help. Right. Is that this body of, of research you're working on now, is that, you mentioned a group. Are you running a group right now, applying I'm these concepts? in the process of developing a group mm -hmm. um, that I hope to pilot in about a year. Yeah. It's going to be based on, uh, it's informed by this data, mm -hmm. but it's actually going to be a group for um, provisionally licensed counselors. Uh, we're meeting and talking about mm. things that help or get in your way of being mindful with a client. So yeah. part of it is learning mm -hmm. some mindfulness practices, but we're going to be introducing specific ways to be more mindful mm -hmm. with clients. And we're going to look at how does that impact to improve the counselor's well-being, their relationship, and hopefully also look at the client improvements over mm -hmm. that time. That's going to be based on some ideas um, in a paper that's coming out, um, kind of looking at really fostering an intention to be mindful with the client, 
weighing and examining those internal and external barriers to being mindful with the client, but also fostering that experiential understanding. And that kind of comes back to that idea of like, when my supervisor was telling me, you need to get out of your head, and I didn't have an idea of understanding what he meant. And then something happened, and it was like, I can't describe it, but I know what it feels like mm -hmm. to now be doing what he's trying to tell me to do. Hmm. There's an aspect of that with mindfulness, that it's a, it's a way of being in the moment, and if you, we, that's what we want to foster, not just talking about it, mm -hmm. but doing it mm -hmm. with the client in the moment and recognizing what that is. So really helping to tease apart when I was mindful and what that was like as opposed to when I wasn't mindful mm -hmm. and what that was like. I don't know if there is a um, mindfulness supervision theory, but I, I hear like a baby theory being born here of a supervision theory and it's certainly trans theoretical anyway yeah. it could just be an, an additional component somehow but it feels rich it feels useful um, it's uh, purposeful mm -hmm. you know on, on these few different levels the student the counselor the supervisor it's um it's identifiable yeah, identifiable yeah some language to it and then i loved it some practical aspects to apply I love to ideate around Student these things, and I'm yeah. thinking, this, you know, it's strong, strong, Dave. Yeah. Dave's mm -hmm. strong. He's passionate about it. Yeah. So where are the next, you know, couple years, five years, ten years going to take this? We'll be watching, listening. Excellent. Mm -hmm. I think. And are we coming back? Coming I back, believe we? we are, yeah. I've got okay. a, a whole new dimension of the therapeutic relationship that we've looked at that I think. Okay. Watch Stay out. Stay tuned. Listen up, people. One more. With Dave Johnson, Dr. David Johnson. Bob, this has been fun. It has. I think Shannon, my focus. Really I, I think I'm sharp right now. <laughs> I am so focused, and um, I don't know that I've been meditative enough this week. I'm feeling a little, uh, you know, held accountable for that. I'm going to have to get way more into my meditative practices. Mm -hmm. um, but I am. I'm enjoying this topic, and all, in all seriousness, I'm enjoying the topic and um, appreciate Dave's good work. And we ought to say too, you know, students, there are an opportunity, are multiple opportunities for you to be engaged with faculty research when you partner with us at Wake Forest University in the Department of Counseling. Um, Dr. Johnson is obviously doing a great body of work here, adding to the literature, advancing the literature around um, mindfulness, um, mindfulness in practice. I mean, it's, just, it's exciting. There are many others who are doing great and wonderful research, and so that's an opportunity. Um, you know, Dave, I know you inv involve students. I know of others who do that mm -hmm. as well. So. Um, students, look look as you're making decisions about your training program. Um, take a look at what the various faculty are involved in, what they're passionate about, and if that's a, a shared interest, a shared pas a passion of yours, reach out and see what the possibilities are. Dave, you want to yeah, say something? Yeah, and if I could put in a plug for that and for the idea of uh, involving students in research, which yeah. is something I very much like to do. Um, the study that I was sharing about earlier about the four more times per week seems to really be what's making that difference for enhancing the working alliance. That manuscript came out about five days ago. So depending <laughs> on when you're listening to this, yeah. it's the <laughs> April yeah. edition of the Journal of Humanistic Counseling. And my um, second and third co-authors for that were two students of mine that Look at were that. Very, nice. very interested in this wow. topic. And, um, you know, they, they put up with all of my statistical jargon and research <laughs> mumbo jumbo. And um, really proud of the, the work that we pulled out. And so that was uh, Melinda Frazee and Natalia Bourne, um, wow. two of my former students at a previous uh, university. But I think that's just an example of um, 
that wasn't at Wake Forest, but that's certainly an example it's of who the, the you are. way mm-hmm. we incorporate our yeah. students into yeah. our work. And I've got yeah, several example. of my GAs um, now and former GAs here at Wake yeah. that are involved in some current and just finished mm-hmm. up research projects as well. And that's real. That's that's going beyond the academic. You know, it's much like yeah. your experience there as a student of things clicking and these research opportunities, opportunities to really learn and grow and then make a positive contribution in the field and in your community. Those are opportunities you can have with us here at Wake Forest University. Bob, this has been fun. And uh, we'll be back in another episode with Dr. David Johnson. But I believe for now, 